Welcome back to Sunday Wire, everybody. This is Sunday Wire number 146. I am Hesher, and I have Patrick Henningsen on the line with me. We're about to be joined by Vanessa Beely. And before we get to our next guest, I would just like to take a moment and say, uh, Hey, Patrick, uh, I don't know if you told us where you are this week, so give us a little bit of a report as to where you're at, what you're up to, and uh, what we can expect going on with uh, 21st Century Wire and Sunday Wire in the upcoming weeks. And uh, also give us a little bit of an update on uh, the new subscription service over there at 21Wire, 21Wire.tv. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Hesher. Um, just wanted to announce that um, after a very long time, uh, we, we have launched 21Wire.tv in May. Uh, we've opened up a membership drive. It's going really well. Uh, so if you like what we do, if you want to support our work, uh, go and subscribe at 21Wire.tv. There's a click uh, on the show page with a backpack and a camera. They'll take you to the membership page. Now, uh, this is how we're going to keep our operation sustainable, the show, the website, and expand it uh, over the next 12 months. We made some huge strides already this year, and I want to basically do double what we did this year uh, in the next 12 months. I was just at the Glastonbury Symposium this past week, uh, so great event run by Andy Thomas and his team in Glastonbury, and I gave a, a presentation there uh, about uh, some of the stuff that I'm working on, and uh, it's called Single Blade of Grass, and the, the message was that even a single blade of grass can crack a concrete block, and that's how I approach this work, and everybody that I work with, I think, has some similar ethos to that. Um, and so it was a real powerful presentation. So hats off to the organizers of that event. We'll have video clips of that up um, and maybe some photos this week. So I'm on the road right now. And um, before I – okay, I'm going to introduce Vanessa Beely, who's a contributor at 21st Century War. But Vanessa and Hesher, I just want to share a story with you. Yeah, I was in Oslo. I wanted to check out the Nobel Peace Prize Museum. I wanted to go and check it out, see what's going on there. And uh, so I go in there, and Vanessa, you'll like this. Uh, they're giving a tour. Um, the upstairs section was kind of the Arab Spring section. And the lecturer there, who I believe was from North Africa or she was Middle Eastern, she had a crowd of foreigners, various people, some Americans, some Europeans, telling them all about the Arab Spring. She started with Libya saying, uh, didn't mention anything about the NATO bombing or NATO backing jihadis or the gun running and none of that. So I bit my tongue. I bit my tongue. Then she said Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons against his own people in 2013. This is at the Nobel Peace Prize Center in a tour that was being given, a lectured tour, saying that Assad used chemical weapons against his own people in Ghouta in 2013. And at that point, I couldn't hold my tongue. I spoke out, and I said, I'm sorry, but that's not true. Um, those are lies. And I went on to kind of lecture her. Uh, even the U.N.'s own inspector debunked those bogus claims, as did Massachusetts Institute of Technology, etc., and the list goes on. So you could have heard a pin drop. I was the most unpopular person uh, in that venue at that moment, uh, maybe in the whole of Oslo. But uh, I couldn't keep my mouth shut because what I was hearing was complete propaganda. So regime change, war propaganda being doled out 
every day, four times a day, to tourists at the Nobel Peace Prize Museum. Can you believe that, Vanessa Bealey? Well, uh, did they have a white helmet on this flag? Uh, they might as well. It was a she, actually. Uh, it was a female, so. But uh, well, she, she said, well, she said, she said to me, that's your opinion. I said, it's not a question of opinion. I said, it's a, it's a question of historical fact. Um, yeah. But there you go. There you go. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting you say that, and it sort of makes me smile, because uh, as I'm sure you're going to mention to um, your listeners, uh, I've just come back from Syria, and one of the meetings I had was with President Assad, uh, who told us during the meeting that, in fact, the greatest number of ISIS commanders are from Norway. That's wow. interesting. <laughs> that that took a second to to kind of drop in there, right? <laughs> wow. And uh, wow. Yeah. That's a bit of a, and I mean, this is based on obviously their data and their figures, which are extensive. Um, and and the interesting thing, you'll kind of like this, Patrick. Uh, they've gone from this is I don't know whether this is a theory or whether this has been sort of um, proven by by research, but they've actually gone from heavy metal, hard rock, um, secular society into this extremism. So they're, they're not even Muslim; they've just gone into extremism from hard rock, heavy metal in Norway, to Syria. <laughs> wow, what a narrative I'd that is. <laughs> I'd love you to do an article on this, Vanessa. Uh, it's coming, don't worry. And I, I really apologize to, to everyone. It's just been, it's been a crazy seven days with barely five minutes to, to breathe, let alone write anything or um, get anything up on the site. So there is a huge backlog of information that uh, needs to be written up and, and put up there. But, yeah, that, that was an extraordinary. And the other thing that he added to this um, was that the majority of the recruitment now is no longer obviously done in the mosques. It's basically done via the net. They, they figure that about 80% of recruitment is now done via the net. Oh, it's more cost-effective that way. I think uh, it's cheaper, um, and you can, it can be done from... Uh from a think tank in Bethesda, uh, mm. Maryland, or something like that, or uh, was it Site Intelligence, run by yeah. the cats over there? Oh yeah, um, yes, yes. So I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know who's doing the recruitment, but it can be done from anywhere now. So yeah, uh, it's very interesting. Well, and you know, it's um, it saves it saves the Saudis a little bit of money. I I saw um, our friend Patrick, uh, Doctor Radwan Rizka, this morning, and and he mentioned the fact that the Saudis. I think since, uh, I, I can't remember the date that he said it, it all started, maybe just before the Arab Spring, um, but they've basically spent, you know, upwards of $220 billion on um, creation of terrorism, of, of Wahhabi infiltration, not only in the Middle East, but as we know, um, across Europe as well, um, in the masjids and in the um, mosques across Europe. So, you know, it'll save them and a little Asia, bit. And across Asia. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and yes. Right to, right to the Philippines. Right to the yep. Philippines. So what, what's the mood like in Damascus, Vanessa? What's the, what, what, do you, what did you pick up there? What were your general feelings? Look, I mean, you know, I'm still, I, I think I'm still really, all of us are probably still um, digesting everything, the, the huge mountain of information um, that we were given um, the, the kind of sensory overload that we, we were um, 
I won't say subjected to, that, that we were um, enabled to, to share with the Syrian people. Um, I, I spent a couple of nights uh, out in, uh, sorry, one night in, in Babtuma, um, in the old city in Damascus, uh, with Ava Bartlett, in fact. Uh, it, just after um, the terrorists had started firing mortars again after a two- or three-month um, ceasefire to some extent, and um, during that first attack, uh, they hit a cafe, which I think Ava spoke to you about. And, I mean, you know, you hear this all the time, but we were just astounded. We're meters away from this area the following night. People were back out. There was music on the streets. People were, were, were you know, sitting down, drinking, talking, smoking shisha, uh, walking in the streets. And in the background, you could hear the, the booms of the, um, the friendly fire, um, if you like, from the Syrian Arab army hitting the terrorist areas. And you could hear the occasional um, slightly louder <laughs> explosion. Um, but, but barely anyone flinched, uh, and quite possibly because they recognized it as friendly fire as opposed to unfriendly fire. Um, but it, it was sort of this extraordinary resilience and determination to, to simply keep on living and to um, deny oxygen to this terrorist entity that is trying to, to disrupt and, and devastate their lives. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, what we, what we took away from the whole trip was, were many things. Um, it was a very emotional journey, I think, for, for everyone. Um, and I think what we came away with is two things which really hit me hard. One, uh, if we imagine our own countries were being bombarded and battered and devastated and abused and tortured by a foreign power, would we invite a delegation from that foreign power into our country and treat them with graciousness and humility and dignity and integrity and honesty? Or would we be looking for revenge and retribution and... Um, you know, some form of, of, of um, revenge for, for what they were doing to us. It, we certainly, you know, we've become, it, it was a huge um, revelation to me. Maybe, perhaps I already knew it, but it somehow just crystallized in this environment that, that we, thanks to our administrations and to our governments, have become such a vengeful culture, a culture which... Uh, if if we're if we're hit, we hit back, and what we saw in Syria um, was an unbelievable desire for reconciliation from everyone, not only from members of the government, from but from all the members of the opposition that we met, from all uh, the members of the student union, of the chamber of commerce, of the people on the streets, of the Christians, of the um, Alawites, of the Druze, of the Sunni, of the Shia. Um, and, and the one thing that resonated through every discussion was that, that they all said, whoever asked them the question, how many Christians are in Syria, how many Sunni are in, are in Syria, their response would always be 23 million. Because as far as they are concerned, there is no division. And we saw no sign of division. It didn't matter where we went. If we went to Malula, which is a Christian um, town, 
that was um, attacked by the terrorists, if we went to Sidnaya, which is also a Christian town, um, we saw Muslims and Christians coming into the church, Muslims that had been driven out and displaced from villages surrounding Malula and Sudnaya coming into the church to worship. Yeah, and this just defies, it defies all the, uh, the, the false stereotypes and fake narratives uh, that were being uh, force-fed uh, uh, for you I mean, now. yeah, and, and you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, you, you, you know, we'll move on to the meetings with the Grand Mufti and uh, most importantly with President Assad. Um, and in fact, Assad's description of America was was very funny, and it was also very apt. He, he basically said, you know, he sees America as almost this kind of steroided up um, bodybuilder whose only um, road to success is through through more muscle, more muscle every time. You know, they they never use their their brain. I mean, he's talking about the administration and the corporatocracy here, obviously. <laughs> Not so much the American people, but he's, you know, the way he described it, he said this is just pure false and bulk. There's no actual substance behind it, and it was it was a very simple and a very clear analogy. Um, and we'll come on to many of the other things that he said. But yeah, you know, when I when I came out of D- Damascus, having been um, privileged and blessed to be a part of the society for a very short time, but still to be incredibly affected by it. And I came out, and, and I see, you know, Hillary Clinton's um, latest threats to, to basically um, escalate the war in Syria because of the murderous regime, the chemical attacks, the barrel bombs. I mean, it's almost like, my God, if I'd just been transported back five years to another parallel dimension, or, you know, Samantha Power... Um, being extremely disturbed by the way the Syrian Arab army and the government is handling Aleppo, etc. I mean, it's it's just, it's it's honestly like Syria is this island of everything that actually our society should should be searching for and should represent, and yet we don't. And and it's extraordinary. We're looking at a country that is um, almost a hundred percent secular that promotes social democracy that has free health care, free education, that believes in amnesty, even for terrorists, even for foreign terrorists, um, and believes in reintegrating those that have defected from the army or from into violent opposition gangs, that they should be integrated back into society if they so wish. Um, and there are programs in place to do that. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of mind-blowing. When we then come back and, and hear our government, you know, spitting this venom about a country that actually represents everything that they are not. Yeah, this, it's the same the same script. I, I honestly, I don't know what's going on between the ears of people like uh, Samantha Power, uh, like Hillary Clinton. Um, they're reading the same script. The regime, the regime, the regime, the regime are murdering its own people. The barrel bombs, the barrel bombs, the chemical weapons, and basically all these sort of hyperbole, all the rhetoric, yeah. all the lies, just being recycled over and over. Um, yeah. No actual uh, speaking of any facts on the ground, no, no. analysis at all. It's almost like they've been told, you need to say this. Here's your bullet points. It's regime, regime, barrel bombs, barrel bombs, uh, Brutally killing its own people, uh, chemical weapons, chemical weapons, 
and uh, etc. And we need a political transition. Assad must go. Assad must go. Mm. They just keep repeating this over and over. The steroid bodybuilder uh, in mm. Washington keeps repeating this over and over again, and then threatening to escalate the conflict. Um, one has to ask the question: You know, are there any brains active? I think we need to. Put, uh, the first thing they need in, in Washington is an electoral encephalograph to basically see if there's any brain activity, any brain activity going on at all, or is it just bluster and rhetoric and sound bites? Because mm. I think it's the latter. Well, I, 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 I mean, I'm uh, to the, preaching to the choir. I'm <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I was talking to, to Radwan Rizka this morning, and I don't know whether he, he mentioned this to you. It might have been after um, you you talked with him on the, on the show. Um, but he was telling me about a trip that he took uh, to Damascus with a Telegraph uh, reporter. He didn't name them. And he said they were, they were walking through the streets of Damascus, and uh, this, this father of a child that had been hit in school by one of the terrorist mortars and had consequently lost both legs. Uh, and she'd gone through a, a procedure of various operations, ended up in France to get these um, special sort of implanted legs. And they, the, they went through this whole um, incredibly disturbing emotional history of this child. And at the end of it, when the father had gone, this reporter turned round to Dr. Risco and she said, okay, did, did you organize that? You know, did you, did you make sure that we would bump into this person? And, and this is, in other words, is this propaganda? And, you know, I, I, I was just incredulous because it doesn't matter where you go in Syria. Um, everybody has a story. It, it, it really doesn't matter. We, we were invited to an evening. Um, I can't remember which day it was. They've all kind of merged into one. And there were around 30 people there. And at some point in the evening, um, people just came and sat down. I, I think they'd been, you know, we were, we were told that's what would happen. And they were from everywhere across uh, Syria, from Homs, from Aleppo, from Deir Zor. And they came and sat, and they basically told us their stories. And it's almost impossible not to, to just weep when you hear... The, the monstrosity that our governments have unleashed upon this nation. Um, I mean, the stories from Homs, from a woman that was living in Homs, who's an artist and a writer, um, and she said, and I won't go into too much detail because it's fairly, it is really pretty grotesque, but she said basically that all the women, one, uh, they released all of the prisoners, by the way, in Derazor, they let them out in order for them to join um, the, the ISIS groups there. And so rapists, murderers, thieves, smugglers, whatever you want, were, were allowed out of prison in order to, to, to basically torture and abuse the civilians in Derazor. Yeah, the, the, creme de, the creme de la creme, the creme de la creme. Absolutely, yeah. And um, the women were stripped naked and were made to walk in the street. Some women, um, and this is going to be distressing for your listeners, but I, I really think it needs to be heard because these terrorists are not some entity that is divorced from our administrations. They are 
the grotesque perversion of our administration's mentality and psychology. And this is something that, you know, we have to wake up to, that, that these are not some far-flung terrorist body that is, that is, you know, far enough away from us to not be a threat. That same terrorist body is residing in the very center of our cultures and our society. It's just that we see them wearing suits and, you know, speaking very eloquently in Congress or in Parliament, wherever it may be. And so we don't somehow make that link or that association. But we have to recognize that, that these creatures could not exist had they not been incubated in, in the psychopaths' minds that are governing us right now. Um, with Saudi funding and Turkey adding, uh, acting as a middleman, of course. But fundamentally... And, and, and um, trade... And trained and trained. Yes, by, absolutely. By, you, know, American, you know, so by British, by French special forces, trained and equipped mm. and shown how to be brutal, shown how to torture, shown how to uh, do all of these dastardly crimes yeah. um, to terrorize absolutely. people. And so, and so, I I'm going to extend that, Vanessa. The, the terrorism we're seeing in, in Europe and North America. Yeah. Uh, is an extension of that. It's, it is not organically from the Middle East. It is a command structure. It's a, it's a system that's been implemented by the West. Absolutely. And it's, you know, ISIS or Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Boko Haram, it's only a brand name. It's a label for their own hegemonic ambitions and, and destructive, rapacious mentality. And, and, just going back to Homs, when, when these women were paraded in the street naked, I mean, many of them married, many of them pregnant, they were then killed in ways that truly even the deepest, darkest minds would struggle to comprehend. Women strapped between two cars and the cars were separating. I, I, I will not go into any other details because really it was horrific. And... This is only one town. This is only one. So, so where, and so the worst part about so this, then you have the cynicism from these journalists, yes, from from yeah. the U.S., from Britain, accusing uh, the regime they call it of propaganda. And so, where is the outrage? Where are the women's rights groups for these women that are being massacred by Western-trained, Western-equipped, Western-funded Gulf? Saudi-funded, Qatari-funded terrorists. Where's the outrage? Absolutely. Where is the, where, absolutely. Where, where are the, where are the, where are the pins? Where are the lapel pins? Where are the Facebook exactly. uh, profile flags? Where are, yes. where is it? Where is the real outrage? Because that's the real crime. That is the real crime. Okay, I mean, they, they, Sorry to go on another rant. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, you know, a rant is just not enough because to try and and then to try and and convey to people to these to these i don't know venom spewing gargoyles that represent us in our countries um that when you sit in an office with somebody like the grand mufti and, and you you hear this language of um peace and reconciliation and forgiveness and understanding, and and it's it's like it's seriously like you you have just been transported to to another universe, and and you recognise that we have gone, 
we have drifted so far away from these values or we've been pushed so far away from these values. And, you know, we are living through this, this dystopia, this brave new world vision right now. And as Said Nasrallah has said, we're being driven from, from, through sectarianism to communitarianism to individualism, and finally it will be complete isolation. And Syria is, is it, it's quite an extraordinary experience. I mean, as the Grand Mufti said at the end of his audience with us, he basically said, and, and he was crying. I mean, you know, this is not some kind of propaganda. He was genuinely, tears were rolling down his cheeks. And he said, if you do not extinguish the, the fire in Syria, it will engulf the world. And he said, we will keep it here for as long as we can. And it's, it's hard not to get emotional about that. And it's hard to convey um, the expressions that, that were being presented to us of Syria being, if you like, um, a, such a protection for us because they are fighting this um, demonic creation on the ground there. And, and there is not one human being in Syria that has not suffered as a result. Not one. So they're, so they're absorbing brunt. They're absorbing the yes. brunt of the, 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 the monster which has been uh, created and facilitated and fed and fueled by our civilization in uh, North America and Europe. And it's quite, that, that to me is a quite simple narrative. And also the Gulf monarchies, okay, who are allies in the coalition, the U.S.-led coalition, so-called coalition against ISIS, which is really creating the problem, not fighting it. So Syria is bearing the brunt of this. They're absorbing it. They're holding that fire, as you said, um, in, in a noble in a noble way, in a noble fashion, in an age where where noble causes where there are no more noble causes in this age yeah. that we live in, there are no more noble causes in the West. There is there is only hypocrisy. There is only rhetoric. There is only uh, fake uh, charities and uh, you know do good NGOs that are right now uh, basically many of them part and parcel with the military-industrial complex and the you know, intelligence agencies that are wreaking havoc on the region, quite frankly. Okay, yeah. so where are the noble and causes? Syria is fighting, fighting the noble cause for, for the well, world. Well, let, let me just give, because I, I don't in, know. In that perspective. <laughs> yeah, and, and let me just give, I'd like to just, um, you know, give one anecdote from, from that meeting. Um because I think it's important, and, and many of the listeners may not be aware of this story because it's not something that has, as far as I'm aware, been, been sort of hugely publicized. Um, but the Grand Mufti of, of Syria, who, who, by the way, does not consider himself to be Sunni or uh, Shia or Alawite, or he he's basically considers himself um, the Grand Mufti of Syria, and that includes um, the Christians, uh, the Jews, the, every single minority comes under his protection as far as he is concerned. And, and that has been, you know, that was confirmed um, when, when we saw both him and the Orthodox Christian bishops together. Um, but I don't know if the listeners are, are aware that his only son was um, murdered, uh, was murdered by 16 terrorists who were paid by Saudi Arabia to do this. The, the call came through from Saudi Arabia to basically 
assassinate either the Mufti or his only son. And his only son uh, never carried weapons. Um, he was outside the doors of his own university. He was fasting. I'm guessing it was either during Ramadan or he was simply um, following you know, um, um, the fasting procedure. Um, and they killed him. And the 15 killers were eventually arrested. And the Grand Mufti went into prison to see them. And he asked them why they did it. And they explained the whole procedure that the Sauds had, had called them, had offered them huge amounts of money, had asked them to murder either the Grand Mufti or his son. And he looked them all in the face and he said, well, I forgive you. Um, he said, you know, you will meet my son in paradise because I have forgiven you. I mean, whatever your religious beliefs, the, the essence to be taken away from this and from that entire meeting was this um, willingness to work on reconciliation, whatever it was going to take, however battered that country is. And again, this was what we heard from, from everyone we met, it, regardless of the sacrifices that they had made, mothers that had lost, I mean, four or five sons in the Syrian Arab army who had died fighting to defend Syria, were still saying they believed in reconciliation. And President Assad made this point himself. He said when he first introduced, and it was President Assad, that, that worked with the Grand Mufti to introduce this policy of reconciliation, um, which is why they appointed an opposition minister, by the way, uh, Ali Haider from the SSNP, uh, the Syria Socialist National Party, um, as minister for reconciliation. So they absorbed a member of the opposition into um, the government in order to, to preside over the Ministry of Reconciliation. And Assad said very clearly in the beginning... Many people actually accused him of being too soft. He was not tough enough on the terrorist factions. But he said now people are actually seeing that in 80% of the reconciliation um, initiatives and projects, they've been successful. People have been reintegrated into society, even back into the army. So even soldiers and even commanders that left the army went and fought in the armed opposition and then decided to come back. They've actually been um, rehabilitated and then allowed back into the Syrian Arab army and maybe even into commanding positions, um, which is, you know, look at what we do to, to our alleged traitors. You know, our what happened to, yes, you know, what happened to Snowden? Yeah. What happened? That's what I'm saying. We live in such a um, vengeful society. I, I don't think we could even it's, comprehend. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. That's that's an yeah. extraordinary turn of events, and it says a lot about Syrian uh, people. It says a lot about the leadership. It says a lot about their values. We speak so much uh, in such high-minded terms, at least our politicians mm. do, about what are Western values, American values, British values, European values. What are these values, actually? Um, I want to know, because uh, I, no one's ever specific about what these values are. But what you're describing to me right now, Vanessa, is to me the gold standard of what values from a society should be. And it, we saw South Africa took a very unpopular but a brave 
course of action uh, at the end of the apartheid system to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't all things to all people, but it was something. They tried. They tried to make progress down a very difficult and unpopular road. Syria is doing this in a much more intense situation than South Africa even had. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're having success with it. That should be a lesson. Should be that should be our our leaders should be holding that up as the gold standard. Instead, we get Hillary Clinton, we get Obama, we get the rest of them saying Assad must go. The regime, the regime, the barrel bombs, the chemical weapons. He needs to go. He needs to go. I can't. I don't know. I'm totally exasperated by listening mm. to this over and over. But when I, when I hear what you're telling us, Vanessa, what you're telling our listeners today, it, it really it, it does lift one's spirit to say that even in the yeah. face of total evil and a totally cynical Western system of media, of politics, that these people have punched through that and said, no, we're going to take the high road, and they're doing it. That is extraordinary. Well, and I'll give you, well, in fact, uh, I think half an hour before our um, meeting with President Assad, he had signed the degree, the decree um, regarding the amnesty in Aleppo, in eastern Aleppo, which is, um, we know is, is um, terrorist held, al-Nusra, ISIS. Um, so he'd signed that decree half an hour before we arrived, and we've seen it put into action in the sense that, you know, they designated, and this this is another thing. I mean, this is the procedure that they have followed without fail in every single retaking and liberating of of, of terrorist-held areas. So, so it's nothing new. Um, and what they basically do is they designate specific gates out of an area um, for terrorists and then gates for civilians so that the two are not mixing and so that they can control the exits, Right. Um, which is an incredibly, um, you know, sophisticated method in, of dealing with warfare. I mean, we've seen how the Americans deal with this kind of situation. They just bombard it. There's absolutely <laughs> yeah, no desire. They, they, yeah. You know, what did they do in Fallujah? They, they, they carpet bombed it. What did they do with the fleeing Iraqi soldiers, you remember? They bombed them. They, they massacred them what, as they were fleeing, as they had surrendered, as they were running away. They bombed them. And yet they dare to, to, to turn that, to project their own criminality, their own psychopathic criminality onto Syria and to, 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 to portray what the Syrians are trying to do as criminal actions, because they can't understand anything that is not criminal. That's, sim- that's basically what it boils down to. Isn't that the same in Israel is, with, with regards yeah. to the siege on Gaza? Same, same yeah. mentality, same psychopathic mentality, yeah. projecting their criminality onto the victims of their actions. It's quite and, simple. That yes. is the psychopathic mindset. Yeah, and, and very interesting as well, Patrick. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're aware um, that the UN... <laughs> actually issued instructions to the civilians not to leave those areas that they would be safer under terrorist occupation. Can you believe that? But those women <laughs> and children in, inside that area actually refused to listen to it, right? They left under the cover of dark. I've been told this by, by people in the area. 
They left under the cover of dark. They were unable to see where they were going. The only instructions they had were mobile phone messages that were coming through saying, don't worry, your family is here. We're waiting for you with food and blankets and, and humanitarian aid. Just keep walking. And they walked in pitch black on, on, on a road that they haven't seen for, for four years, pretty much, into the unknown. But they trusted their own government and their own army, which, which we know to be the Syrian people anyway, and probably their own children, um, into safety. And they, they said, after they had made this journey, they said that the young men were being held back by the various terrorist factions and being fired upon as they were, if they were trying to leave. So these are, you know, this is the safety that the UN wants them to, to stay in. Oh, that's incredible. So if the UN tells yeah. you go there, it's, it's, if the UN says turn right, you definitely want to turn left. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we've seen this the whole way through. I mean, you know, you remember that we've done a, a series of reports on Kafra and Fura, the, the Shia villages in Idlib that have been under siege from Arar Sham since, um, well, full siege since March 2015, and have lost probably by now over 1,800 citizens. Um, and, and we managed to speak to, to a young man who had managed to escape the village um, to get back to Damascus because he decided that the only way he could help his people was to actually risk his life to leave and to come to Damascus and to work as a humanitarian, um, to work with the Syrian humanitarian NGOs, the Syrian ones, not the Western-backed, Soros-backed, NATO-backed NGOs, the, the, the grassroots Syrian NGOs that everybody ignores in the Western media. And... You know, he was, he actually concurred with the statement we received and we published, um, accusing the UN of being implicit with terrorism in and for and delivering, um, none of the medicines that were required and delivering food that was inedible. And also delivering things like wheat and milk powder, which requires water. Um, to, to, to have any um, constructive use for the civilians there when they know full well that they have no water. So he said, it, he actually said to me, it was a deliberate continuation of the suffering of those people and it was conducted by the UN deliberately. And it wouldn't be the first time uh, from, from what Absolutely I've read, not. studied and been told as well. No. But um, so, and, I mean, this, this, oh, this is a... Sorry. Go ahead, Vanessa. Go ahead. Um, one other thing that I quickly wanted to say, because I think it's important. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously going to write up the entire meeting with President Assad, and it was... Um, I'm, I'm still sort of a little bit overwhelmed by it by, by, for many, many reasons. One, the humility and the dignity of this man that has been demonized and um, has, has endured such horrendous hostility from our media and our governments for, for almost six years now, um, who, who had the grace to basically stride up to the top of his stairs to meet us all as we were coming up. I, I think we were all pretty surprised by that. Um, and who talked to us like, I, I, I've forgotten what it means to sit in a room and to not feel that somebody is, is hiding something or is lying or is simply not answering a question. There was not, and he actually said in the beginning, ask me anything. He said, I really don't care. Ask me about anything. 
He said, I, that's what I'm here for. And he said, I will genuinely answer you. And he did. There was not one question that he even hesitated at. In fact, he spoke, he spoke so fast that it was actually quite difficult to, to sort of keep up with him. Um, wonderful sense of humor. I mean, an amazing sense of humor. And the one question, that, that two questions that I asked him that were, were sort of um, really at the forefront of my mind. One was how he personally has, has found the strength to deal with not only the war that is being waged against his country, not only the crippling sanctions that are devastating the country, particularly in the, in the medical areas and obviously in, in, well, in health and in education, um, but also the, the, the incredible level of um, a personal attacks against him and his family. And his answer, as I say, it came with no hesitation. He simply said, I, and I'm quoting him almost word for word here, I stand for a cause and not for myself. If I were fighting to keep myself in power, the people would have got rid of me by now, and I would respect that. This gives me the confidence to deal with whatever is thrown at me, because I believe in the core, I believe in my country, I believe in our secular state, and I believe in the future of Syria. Um, he pointed out that we live in the center of Damascus, we have a house up on the hill and one of the old palaces that is completely secure and with them complete protection. But he said, we refuse to live there. We live as normal human beings in the center of Damascus. He said the one concession they have made is not to go to restaurants. But he said he still drives his own car around Damascus. And even if they go um, to visit, you know, villages that have been hit or liberated, um, he he has very minimal security, and we've seen this, um, in, you know, in in the um, non-Western media um, footage of his visits to these liberated towns, or even when he's walking through Damascus. Um, and you know, the sheer simplicity of his response, and I certainly could not find anything in it that was not. 100% genuine. It's just that I think we've become, we've become cynical because our own politicians are such, um, you know, um, tremendous liars, hypocrites, and deceivers. And yeah, it, one other question, yeah, sorry. And the, and go, go ahead, Vanessa, go ahead. No, the, the one final question that I asked him, and, and seriously, this one just, I'm still trying to compute it, and it's completely blown me away. I, asked, I, I said to him, okay, because he explained, you know, the process by which the Wahhabi doctrine has infiltrated Syria. It's been allowed to come in via um, the imams, via the mosques, via the um, indoctrination of the marginalized, the poor, the criminal sections of society, and the smugglers that have come in from, from Jordan, from Turkey, and so on, that have been bought, basically, um, by the Saudi agents. And, you know, I said to him, well, okay, but, you know, what is the solution to this? Because Wahhabism now is, is such a global threat. And he said, well, look, what we're working on here, <laughs> and honestly, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around this. He said, well, what we're working on here is... We have brought together all of the different um, sects, all of the different Muslim 
factions inside Syria. So whether they are Shia, whether they are Sunni, whether they're Druze, whether they're Sufi, doesn't matter. They've come together. And even the more fanatical, these were his words again, have agreed that we will almost constitutionalize the interpretation of Islam. And so therefore there will be um, a, a universal interpretation which has been agreed on or, or will be agreed on by scholars from ev- chosen scholars from every sect inside Syria and this universal interpretation will allow for or will follow um, the philosophy and the ideology of reconciliation of peace of tolerance and of acceptance of all other minorities inside Syria isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that the most simple, simple solution that will simply take away the oxygen from the Wahhabis? Yeah, well, I think when you have extreme situations and extreme times, uh, sometimes the, the, the solutions are the simplest or the best solutions. Um, but what's more extraordinary is that, like you said, rather than trying to build a vengeful society, a, a, re, a reactionary, a hysterical society, which is what mm. we have in the West, essentially. Um, they're doing the opposite. They're going in the opposite exactly. direction. And exactly. And he, he actually better said... Ch- better chance yeah. of success. And he actually said, you know, one thing he said I have to thank, and he was, talk- he was on this subject, and he said, I have to actually thank you, you know, your administrations for this, because he said, without this war, I would never have got the fanatics on board. And he was laughing. He, he said, you know, everything has a silver lining, and that's my silver lining. He said, because now even, even the more fanatical um, imams have, have come on board with the idea. <laughs> so, you know, this, this sort of, and, and by the way, when you talk about hysteria, <laughs> that was actually how he described uh, Erdogan's uh, government as being a government of hysteria. So it's, it's sort of, um, it's quite apt. But no, I mean, that, that was the closing of the meeting, basically, was this um, sort of wonderful um, initiative uh, that, he, that he has launched. And, you know, it's, it's so extraordinarily simple. And I truly believe that in a country like Syria, it can work. Because I've rarely seen such a, okay, you know, I, I can't claim to have gone from... from north to south and east to west and covered every single village. But from those that I saw, the displaced people, from the members of the opposition, opposition, the 29-plus opposition parties, by the way, that are actively encouraged to protest and to act as a watchdog to, to the government. I mean, as I'd actually said, my God, I need them. He said, you know, they're my watchdog, they're my, they're my conscience. And he said, I, I need them to be there. And that was echoed by the opposition leaders that we met. Um, that we said to them, well, what are you actually looking for? And they just laughed. They said, well, we don't want our, our, our education to cost $50. We want it to cost $5. And we want more secularism. <laughs> you know, and, and again, we, we met, all, we met the, um, the head of parliament, who's a woman. His vice president is a woman. But again, he said, he sat her down. He said, you know, you're in this job, but you're not in this job as a woman. We have complete gender equality in this government. So I don't, I am not going to do you any favors because you're here as a woman. You're here as my vice president, um, the head of parliament, who is a woman. 
uh, as one of the parliamentary members who, who was in opposition said to us, you know what, our parliament has been here for a hundred years. The U.S. and, and NATO are, are dealing with governments like Saudi Arabia that don't even have a parliament. And yet they point their fingers at us as if we are non-democratic. That says it all. It's a microcosm of the whole situation right there, that statement. All right, Vanessa, looks like we may have lost Patrick there. Are you still with us? Yeah, I am. I was wondering if you both disappeared. Yeah, it looks like he may have dropped off the call there. So uh, I don't know if you're able to hold on the line for a little bit here, but uh, maybe we can do a station break and see if we can reconnect Patrick. Okay, fine, no problem. Okay, great. So uh, I'm Hesher. You're listening to Sunday Wire number 146, I believe. And thanks for hanging out with us this afternoon. This evening, depending on where you happen to be, uh, we'll be right back while we reconnect Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. <laughs> 